0: Hey everybody, just a very small note before we begin this episode. Our guest Jeff has shared with us a few slides that will help you navigate through the episode. It is not mandatory at all, you can listen to the episode and still get everything, but if you want to go deeper and have a visual support, head to corporate treasury 101com head to the article section and look for the one with Jeff to download the slides for free. The link is of course in the description to make it easier. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. Today, we delve deep into the world of foreign exchange risks with true experts in the field of FX risk management, Jeff Goggins from Kiriba. Jeff is a director at Kiriba, part of the advisory team, and focuses on FX risk management. Kiriba's treasury management system is, well, a well-known solution in the market, providing automated cash management, bank connectivity, Liquidity planning, payments, working capital features, and much more. In the episode of today, expect to learn what is a risk exposure, what is foreign exchange risk, and what are the different types of financial risks a company can face. When does a risk exposure start and when does it stop? Why should company look carefully into their financial risk and more precisely their foreign exchange risk? How to hedge against those types of risks, what is the one biggest challenge when it comes to FX risk management, how does a period of high volatility impact FX risk management, how is AI impacting financial risk management, and much, much more. We are thrilled to have an incredible guest, such as Jeff, with a deep passion for treasury on today's episode. Also, and when you are thinking about how you found out about our podcast, chances are that it was through World of Mars, social media, or a recommendation from your favorite podcast platform. And this is our ask to you. The only way the podcast can grow and for more people to learn about Treasury is thanks to you. So if you enjoy what you hear, please consider following the show, leaving a review, or sharing this episode to help others discover it too. And with all that being said, please welcome. Jeff Goggins.
1: Jeff, welcome to the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. So we're going to go over today financial risk, specifically FX risk. We did an episode on this a long time ago where we went into the different types of Risk and hedging strategies, and today we're going to deep dive onto the fun FX side of it. So, Jeff, start us high level. What is a risk exposure? Like that term used in treasury risk exposure, what does that actually mean?
2: Yeah, well, when we're talking about financial risk and FX risk in particular, um, there seems to be in the industry pretty much uh, agreement on the concept of there being three main foreign exchange risks. And sometimes there's some different terminology used slightly, but it's generally the same concepts. And um, the first being a transactional-based risk. And a lot of times people think of that as anticipated transactions, transactions that haven't occurred yet. And then you also have booked transactions. So foreign are non-functional currency transactions that... Will change in value that are sitting on your balance sheet. So you have your anticipated and your booked transactions. You also then have uh, translation risk. So that's when you have a a non reporting currency entity that, so if you have a British pound, let's say, entity in a US dollar organization, you know, those books at the uh, end of the month or end of the quarter are going to translate up into the reporting currency. So you have translation risk, and then you have uh, net investment risk, which is the change in the uh, net asset value of foreign subsidiaries. So uh, those three are typically how how global companies are viewing FX risk, those three general types.
1: Super interesting. So... FX risk is all about when a company is wanting to do business internationally and they might have different subsidiaries in different locations or also even just suppliers in different locations working in different, different currencies, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. So you can have, you know, a U.S. based or a company or a company that's only truly located in, in one country that is, uh, you know. Trading overseas, and so they have uh, some risk with with that business. But then, what I typically uh, run up against, given that in my field of work, I'm helping global companies set up hedge programs uh, to address this risk. So uh, usually, it's companies of a particular getting to a, a pretty large scale, and they will have a lot of foreign subsidiaries, foreign entities uh, that are also doing business. So not only do you have you know, maybe your, your main corporate entity that does international business, but now you have all of these international subsidiaries also doing, doing business and doing business with other countries and in other currencies. So, so it starts to get kind of like a big spider web of, of foreign activity that, that companies will see changes in values of all their transactions and want to deal with that risk.
0: I like who dig a little bit deeper into those two terms that you mentioned anticipated versus booked so i guess just refer to the transaction exposure right yeah how does that maybe in layman's terms or for everybody to understand anticipated is i'm expecting this transaction to happen but i'm not sure it will happen yet that that would be the idea so it's a little bit of a forecasted exposure right
2: Correct. Yeah. And that goes into like, I think the, the industry agrees with that as a risk, but you mentioned forecasted there. You you, you tend to get a lot of terminology differences and folks uh, calling that a forecasted risk and anticipated risk. Um, and and that's actually just to take a little sidestep away from that. That's, that's one of the challenges, I think, with, with folks who are starting to get into FX and even with the treasury function. Uh, having conversations with other folks within their organization or the CFO is you tend to get uh, you have folks that just have a lot of different terminology in their own head. So so one thing you have to do, especially talking to the CFO, is you want to make sure that you're on the same page with terminology. And and actually, I'll, I'll uh, one example of that. I'll actually kind of shift to the translation side, just from a definitional example, but. You know, in my mind, when, when I'm working with companies, I view translation risk how I described it earlier, which is kind of, you know, right at the end of kind of, if you, if you think of FX risk on a timeline, right at the end, the company needs to translate their books. And, and that, that small slippage that you can have in FX rates between the rates that transactions are booked that month and then the rate that's being used to translate the books to me is the translation risk. But I've talked with a lot of CFOs who will just broadly kind of say, oh, you know, I'm worried about translation risk. And you can't just assume that you know what they're talking about, because uh, what i found is a lot of times what they're talking about is is they're actually talking about the transaction risk that, that you were mentioning, kind of the forecasted risk. So a CFO has a plan. Um, you know, out to the streets, they've set their guidance, and they just broadly think of translation risk as, oh, that's that's going to be the change in my euro revenues that I forecasted, or what the value is now that I budgeted for that, and then what it's going to end up being in, in three months. So they kind of have a different terminology that you need to dissect and, and make sure you're all on the same page with. But going back to the transaction risk uh, question, yeah, so an anticipated risk, the way I view that is, yeah, anytime. The hard part with anticipated risk when you're talking about it is, when does that anticipated or forecasted risk start? Because um, you're setting a budget, your fp a group is setting a budget for the year, or you're setting guidance for the quarter, you're revising forecasts. Or you know that three years from now, if you're working on a, a big project overseas uh, for project-based companies, setting up you know big offshore oil rigs overseas or whatnot, you know they might know that they have an anticipated risk going up four years. But when does that risk actually start? It depends on who's yeah, who you're talking to, who's viewing that risk. But you know, at some point, Someone views there as being a risk. There's an expectation of a foreign transaction being worth a certain amount. And at some point that starts and that's going to be a risk until, you know, that actual transaction occurs. So if you're talking about revenue, you know that you're going to have probably foreign revenues or, um, you know, a company knows that they're going to be selling widgets overseas. Ten years from now, um, so you have this, you know, anticipated risk going out into almost perpetuity. Uh, but at some point, it, you know, is the point where you decide, well, I, I care to lock this down now, and I feel certain enough about it that it's going to occur, that I could potentially go out uh, to a bank, enter into a uh,
0: derivative contracts, and and uh, lock in and hedge that risk perfect so we are getting into the how to mitigate that risk but maybe before getting into this Jeff so anticipated and and or forecasted that's clear if we go back to the anticipated versus booked can you explain what you mean with booked exactly
2: sure yeah and uh so we'll go back to the revenue example so um Mm -hmm. so if we had for us dollar company has euro revenue um So we covered anticipated risk. At some point, you're expecting revenue to come into the future, and at some point in time, though, that revenue is actually going to be realized. You're gonna your foreign entity or you directly are gonna be making this euro sale, and you're gonna book that transaction. It's going to you know hit your revenue line, and in most cases, you know, let's say that particular transaction is gonna. Uh, also, hit then accounts receivable. So you now have a foreign account receivable, and that's going to, uh, at the end of each month that that's outstanding, you know, that's going to what's called revalue or remeasure uh, into the functional currency value of, of your books. So if you're that US dollar company with a euro accounts receivable, you have to reflects that change in value of euros on your books until you eventually receive the cash. And then then you have euro cash on your books uh, that would also be doing that same process as long as you have it. Uh, so then it it the risk lasts until you actually convert that euro cash into your your kind of entity's base currency there, functional currency. Uh, so that's the booked transaction risk. And that that's usually addressed uh you know either separately by companies or they structure hedge program where they could potentially kind of hedge that entire transaction straight through to the end. So from anticipated to the booked receivable uh, in cash up to the
1: end. Can I ask a little bit more of a basic question, Jeff? So so anticipated risk is like I've placed this order. Or this order has been placed with me. Let let's take the example where you're selling abroad, right? So I'm selling my widgets. I'm a U.S. company. I'm going to sell my widgets in Europe. I know that there's a risk of the FX rate changing in the meantime. So that's my anticipated thing. And then when the sale goes through and the money lands in my account, that's the booked risk. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, and it does. Yeah. So once the sale occurs, you're going to probably have an accounts receivable first. Yeah. Then and so that accounts receivable through cash through converting the cash you know because once if we're talking about that euro example once the euro cash gets converted so you realize oh I have extra euro cash in my bank account I want to move that into you convert that with the bank into US dollars and that's then officially when when your risk would end in that particular example
1: why, why do I need an anticipated risk so i understand the booked risk right so but as a company how, uh, why am I or how am I accounting for that anticipated risk? Like, where does that show up? Yeah. What am I doing with that? Like, why do I even need to care until it's actually happened?
2: Yeah. So, one basic example I go to, I won't name the company name, but it, you know, they, they made, um, they made a, a technology product. Um, it's really a home appliance and they were, U.S. based company, they were very big in Japan, so they had a lot of revenue in Japan. So they're they're making this product, for the most part, the product costs that all the costs are in U.S. dollars. I think they might have used contract manufacturing out of China or Malaysia, but you know that it cost them essentially U.S. dollars uh, through that arrangement. They're a U.S. company, so they have the very US dollar mindset everything to them is US dollars and then they do a budget every year that goes out to the street cuz they're a publicly traded company where they're setting an expectation let's say we're going to we're going to get 2 billion dollars in revenue underneath that big 2 billion dollar target that they're setting we, we go below the surface and let's say 500 million dollars is based on their, their actual JPY, their Japanese yen sales. And, um, and if the JPY rates, they, they have to make an assumption. They have to assume, okay, this JPY is going to be a, a certain value so they can consolidate to that U.S. dollar expectation. And so let's say JPY rates was 110 at the time they set that target. And the time they set that expectation... Folks' bonuses might be, you know, based on that as well. So going down to the operational level, it can impact folks. So everyone's expecting to to have this business plan. They have to roll it up to a U.S. dollar plan, and the expectation is one ten Japanese yen. So throughout the course of the year, if the Japanese yen is depreciating, and right now I think I looked yesterday, and the yen has been depreciating uh, for the past couple months, I believe. So it's at like 144 now. So if you had expected those those uh, Japanese yen to be worth 500 million and then the yen depreciates 25%, you know, take 25% hit on your 500 million and I'm coming up with that on the fly. boy, wow, that's a little over 100 million or 125 million, May. Um, you... The business could have done perfectly well. They sold all of the units they wanted to sell. They might have even grown a little bit and, and beat expectations as far as the actual product sales. Um, but purely because of the Japanese yen revenue changing on them, or the value of the Japanese yen revenue changing on them, they have to show, you know, that that um, they didn't have a great year. They didn't meet expectations. So, so that's kind of the anticipated risk. There was. Everything went as planned. They had anticipated Japanese yen revenue, but uh that revenue changed in value because it they don't lock in that revenue until you know they actually book the revenue.
1: And booked is when the invoice gets issued or when it's actually paid. Cause you have the time the delay of like payment terms, right? In between.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's right. And then so if you were a, a U.S. dollar, and, and where Booked comes into play, to dive into that a little bit, is um, a lot of companies have heard do balance sheet hedging, or, or you hear, hear the term balance sheet hedging. Again, with terminology in FX, sometimes folks will call that remeasurement hedging. But what happens there is every entity that you have... And one of the other problems with FX is it's, it's kind of very hard once you get started because concepts are very circular. So you can't really talk about balance sheet hedging until you talk about booked risk until you understand what functional currency is and what this process of remeasurement is. So my one advice to folks who are getting started, kind of learning this FX, is just be patient. It's really an iterative learning process where you're going to kind of go around in circles a lot until it all makes sense. I have not figured out the uh put together a lot of basic trainings for folks, and I think it does a good job walking through these concepts, but there's always kind of a debate on what order the slides should be in, like, well, you know, this should be maybe slide five, but, well, you, you don't know functional currency until you know slide seven, and, you know, it's never a perfect way to do it, but what booked risk is, is that each entity has a functional currency, and If you have a non-functional currency, what's called a monetary asset or liability, so that's typically what you see is cash, accounts receivable, accounts payable, intercompany loans, but they could be also intercompany uh, receivables, payables. So those are kind of your big ticket items there. Uh, But if it's a monetary transaction that's non-functional, you have to remeasure it uh, into the functional currency books that actually creates an FX gain or loss that's in your p l Companies will often book that in other income and expense. And so it has a very direct visible risk. So anticipated risk that we talked about, it impacts your budget and your expectations and it impacts things, but it actually doesn't directly show up on your books. Now, booked transaction risk has that re-measurement process, that change in value, that you have to change the value on your balance sheet. The offset of that does actually directly hit your PL as an FX gain or loss. And therefore, you know, the risk acts differently, but that's the direct risk we're talking about. So you have a foreign accounts receivable, and that's going to change in value. It turns into cash. We maybe convert that cash right away. Maybe it stays in a in a foreign uh, you know bank account, and that cash value has to get remeasured and changed. But um, but yeah, that remeasurement change in value risk is what we're talking talking about with the booked
0: transaction risk. Jeff, that's crystal clear. So how about we break down the last term that you touched upon, coming back at the beginning? So translation risk, booked versus anticipated. It's clear. And it happens at the transaction level. Now, and I I know I struggled a lot understanding it at my beginnings in corporate treasury as well. But can you break down what translation exposure is, and maybe just illustrate it with examples so we can grasp it better?
2: Sure. Yeah. So yeah, I brought up that example where a CFO might have a different definition, but the way I view it is so we we covered the transactional risk. So. You know, from anticipation to booked, if you think of your actual transactions, we assume we've kind of covered that from a risk perspective or we understand it. So now, if you have a foreign subsidiary, and I'll stay with like a U.S. dollar company kind of mindset here, but, you you know, you could be a euro reporting company or a, a, a British pound reporting company, but anything that's not your reporting currency, so you have... A euro subsidiary; it's euro functional, and that's a US dollar company. So they're going to have their own local set of books that they have to do in their local currency, and they they you know they do that also for local tax reasons and things like that. So they kind of have their local currency set of books, and you know that's going to be both your P and L, your balance sheet. We need to now as a global company consolidate all of our global financial statements into, you know, that one single reporting currency set of books as a global company. And so what happens is now you have a Euro balance sheet, a Euro PL, and you are going to translate those books at the end of the month into U.S. dollars. And what happens is you have some historical items um, such as like retained earnings that are actually you know historical and they stay at their old historical rates. But then you have all these new transactions coming on your books at new rates and your balance sheet has to balance. So there ends up being this thing called translation noise comes as a result of this uh, process and, and that creates this translation risk. Companies can broadly think of this too as just You know, the risk of my earnings uh, changing in value, but it can also be this more direct concept of this is the currency translation uh, adjustment that has to be done as I consolidate all my books.
0: Okay. So it's not necessarily on the revenue side, but just on the balance sheet sides. Like I have a US-based entity that consolidates everything. If the total value of the balance sheet of one of my Mexican subsidiary, for instance, goes down because the US dollar went up in value against the Mexican peso, I'm losing money. And that translates into the balance sheet's risk and it's a loss that occurs because of that. but it makes sense?
2: Yeah, basically, yeah. So it's a change in value and, and a lot of times you can think of it as kind of earnings as well. Uh, but that goes into the net investment concept as well. But it's really just that change in value of, of the books based on your kind of historical retained earnings and your new activity coming on that's necessary to uh, get into one consolidated set of
1: books. Jeff, how does that differ from a net investment risk you mentioned earlier?
2: Yeah, so net investment risk is then really the concepts that you have have these foreign entities that have a foreign net asset value, or you could also kind of view that as kind of their retained earnings as well. So it's really that historical then retained earnings um, that is changing in value over time. And so if you have, um, let's say you have a, a euro entity that, that has you know hundreds of millions of earnings that have been piling up and they're, they're euro entities so you have euro cash so we talked about the booked risk there's no booked risk per se there because it's euro cash in a euro entity nothing goes through that remeasurement or revaluation process but what does happen is let's say five years from now you decide, that well, I finally want to repatriate all of my euro earnings into the United States. Well, if euro used to be at 130, you thought, you know, you had, uh, as far as a rates, you know, you thought you had way more U.S. dollar value out of all the, those euros sitting around overseas than what they might be worth today if, if let's say, euro's at parity. So that essentially was... A net investment risk sitting there so it wasn't posing kind of a risk on your books per se because you know nothing was remeasuring as a booked risk but it did have a value change that impacts you as a company now because it didn't have an uh, impact on your books a lot of companies really kind of just let that risk kind of flow, ebb and flow up and down, and, and they don't always hedge that. But uh, some companies will hedge it, or some companies will actually kind of use that risk as a way to, to do some creative things with hedging. So they might not necessarily care about that risk directly, but they will kind of use that risk to do other things with hedging.
1: Do all of these risks apply to just public companies? Because we mentioned like it's all like anticipated and everything else is because you're reporting and you have forecasts. And which one of these are important for companies that aren't necessarily public with, with external shareholders? These risks theoretically, you know, pertain
2: to all global companies. Yeah, you know, depending on how they're set up, some some risks will present themselves, some won't. But theoretically Public, private, these risks exist, but you bring up a really good question because you do see public companies care more about actually addressing the risk and especially, let's say, the booked risk that we talked about. So that's really a lot of times we call that also an accounting risk because that's really that remeasurement process it's creating that FX gain or loss, and that FX gain or loss goes below the line, under operating margins, under EBITDA. And so a lot of private companies will say, well, we don't, we don't really necessarily want to put cash at risk, because if you're hedging it and you have hedge losses, yes, you did the right thing economically, but then you have to pay the bank, let's say, millions of dollars just to... To kind of net settle out that that cash loss, so a lot of private companies will say, "Well, we don't want to hand, we don't want to address that risk because it's below the line, it's below EBITDA. You know, our our private equity owners don't really care about it. We're not measured against it, so we're not going to kind of go through all the hurdles of hedging for that particular r- risk. Whereas a public company, you know, even though it's below the line, it does impact earnings per share." And a lot of them want to eliminate that volatility out of the earnings per share number. So you do have examples like that where private and public companies will respond differently or act differently to the risk, although they they both still have the risk.
0: Awesome. Jeff, how about we we go back a bit? I mean, I feel we're already a bit technical, but that's perfect because you break it down perfectly. Um, How does the, you mentioned earlier, this is where the risk starts and this is where it stops. Can we get back to that concept a bit and like break it down for each of the risks that we've identified? So maybe starting with the transaction risk, anticipated one. Where does that risk start? Where does it stop? And I feel there will be a link with when it starts for the booked one, but I let you break it down.
2: Yeah, we we touched a little bit on the the tough thing with the anticipated side is where does it start? And I, I guess to bring this up a little high level again. So, you know, I th- I think when a company is thinking about potentially addressing these risks and, and that could lead to end up hedging the risk, the first key thing is understanding the risk. Um, and and the important thing that a company first needs to do is really two things is is understand the landscape that they have in their organization. So one of those is we talked about functional currency. So what's your legal entity situation? What are all the functional currencies? We want to take inventory of that. You want to understand the operational structure. Um, You know, if you have an in-house bank or, or some kind of purchasing entity in Switzerland that's kind of your hub for all your inventory and you have all these other and en- intercompany entities that uh, are taking all the inventory from that hub. You want to kind of understand all those operational elements of what's going on. What are the functional currencies? How are you handling the accounting of the actual transactions? Um, so understanding that, looking at your key transactions, map them out on a timeline, kind of understand this, and that's to your question, where does the risk actually start and stop? It it really every company is gonna be different. It's gonna be different on how the operations are working, uh, how the accounting's being done, and um and and how folks are viewing that. So can you can the company change their pricing if the FX rates move? If they can just adjust their pricing, then they're basically naturally hedged. Uh, they don't need to worry about it. If they're locking into a set price for their customers every quarter, then they might view their risk as starting as soon as that price gets set. As soon as, as, soon as we lock into a price for a customer, that's when our risk is actually going to start. Uh, or some companies, you know, they might want to just jump ahead of all that and say, well, we want to influence the price we're going to be setting for our customers by smoothing out rates over a longer period of time. Um, so, you want to understand the landscape and then you want to understand the viewpoint that folks in the organization have on risk. So, the shareholders, the CFO, the senior management, C suite, they might all be viewing risk as a US dollar company, as everything that's not US dollars. Whereas, if you have operations in Mexico, those uh, those operational folks, if, if their functional currency is Mexican peso, they're selling to Mexican peso cust or selling to customers in pesos, those folks might be viewing their risk as anything that's not Mexican peso. Even if they have U.S. dollar items that they're buying, they might view U.S. dollars as a risk. So in that case, you have a conflicting viewpoint. You have some folks doing everything that's not U.S. dollars as a risk, whereas at the same time you have folks on the ground that are viewing U.S. dollars as a risk. So one thing you got to do is kind of get folks together, stakeholders together, and kind of figure out, well, what, how are we defining risk as a company and how are we going to measure this risk? And then you have to, at that point, you can now decide, okay, what are we going to do about it or what can we do
0: about it? Okay. So feels that there might be a bit of change management and education around FX to be done with that Mexican subsidiary, but I guess that that would be for another episode. You you mentioned yeah. something interesting. Like are you able to pass on that risk into your prices directly? And therefore you're basically immune to that to that risk. So I've seen in my short lifetime inflation indexed contracts, meaning, okay, at the beginning of each year, if it's like very long-term sales contract if the inflation has gone up 10%, let's say, our prices will also go up 10%. Like this, you just pass on the inflation onto your clients. But I've never seen FX rate indexed contracts. Is it something that exists?
2: I think they do exist, and um, not that commonly. I, I think in certain countries, you'll see it more. And the tricky thing with that is that you can have contracts that let's say are in U.S. dollars, so at the surface level, it looks like it's not a risk to you. But underneath the surface, if it's referencing, you know, a, a Brazilian rei price um, that is saying and will readjust to, you know, the Brazilian central bank rate at the end of the month, I think you probably more commonly see that the other way, where it's really a Brazilian. Looking contract that's underneath the surface priced in u s dollars, but you get these things where you do end up finding that you have hidden risks that that you can't really see at the surface, so yeah, so so that's another thing too you you can't always just look at the invoice currency sometimes in certain situations you want to look beneath the surface and realize, wow, well, I really have. I really have a euro risk that looks like a US dollar invoice um, because the price is adjusting to the euro you know, every month or every quarter. Or so, so yeah, that can happen, uh, similar, I guess, to the inflation hedging. But, um, but you don't see it that, you know, as much as you'd think in a material way.
1: So, Jeff, you raised a good point there about stakeholders having different views on what is actually the risk. Right, so you gave that example about the Mexican subversion. You're seeing the U.S. dollar as risk, and vice versa. Goes back to a concept I think we covered a few times, which is, yes, the technicalities are important, but people, and people management, is perhaps even more important than that. Can you can you take us through like that part of the FX risk world, like stakeholder management or stakeholder expectations or viewpoints?
2: Yeah, sure, and. that's that's a really challenging part of, of dealing with FX that a, a global company is getting everyone on board. And I, I think some that's one reason why some companies, I think, put hedging um, as far as kind of a transformational project with the company. Uh, sometimes they kind of push that aside a little bit because it's uh, it, it can be so challenging for them just to get everyone on board on the same page Setting that objective, but also, you know, treasury needs to get the right information and uh, needs help in a lot of cases from the subsidiaries. If we're talking about exposures, you need to get um, the exposure information. A lot of times, from from various ERP systems, you have to, in some cases, get forecasts from the local entities or the FPNA team. And when we're talking about setting up anticipated risk, the forecasted risk hedging, that's one of the when a company is first starting. That's you know the first thing that you talk to them about. You know they can look at historical information at least at first to kind of understand well what what's our risk and what's it been. But then when you start thinking about how are we going to address this on an ongoing basis, while well, we need FPNA to start sending us you know a forecast at these transactional levels and what you find is Fpna will say well you know we're, we are we kind of only forecast at the functional currency level or so they don't look underneath the surface to what at a transactional side you know what's really driving um, some of the risk uh, within that entity so that's a change that you have to to work through the organization is, okay, we need to start getting this information. We need to start getting visibility to all this information. Uh, and then, yeah, at a higher level too, then uh, you do have these situations where you have those different viewpoints. And, and then again, it kind of has to go a little circular because if you start talking about hedge accounting and certain things like that, well, they hedge accounting might restrict uh, certain ways you want to do things. So, If you're a US dollar company with all your euro Euro revenue and a euro entity, and you're viewing that euro revenue as a risk, well, as you can't get hedge accounting by hedging euro revenue in that particular case, because it's all on a euro entity. So we don't have to go that far in the details on that, but it's just an example of Well, now I'm adding in this extra element of I have these rules for hedge accounting and that might have to now circle back to kind of say, okay, this is what we can and can't do to qualify for hedge accounting. And, you know, what do we want to do as an organization? Do we want to view this risk more at the local entity level? Do we want to try to find some workarounds here to um, to hedge things at this U.S. dollar viewpoint? Um, and it requires a lot of conversations, and if you don't have those conversations, you know, at the beginning and set things up properly, um, that's where you kind of end up running into companies that have these hedge programs that don't always make a lot of sense. Folks like Treasury feels like they're on an island. They're they're doing hedging because they think they're doing the right thing, but no one else in the organization is really appreciating what they're doing because and they don't understand what they're doing. Um, so, getting everyone on that same page early uh, on all these concepts that I'm sure are sounding very confusing right now. But uh, getting everyone on the same page and mapping it all out is really what you got to do when you're set-
1: setting these things up. Can you explain that a little bit? Every time you've said risk in this episode, right? I've assumed it's the risk of the FX going the way you don't want it to. So, if you're a US based company, you're getting and you're getting payments from euros, uh, you get less dollars than you anticipated to get, right? I, I thought that was the risk. So that's why I'm like, well, what? how is there no clarity between stakeholders on that? Like surely everyone everyone gets, we to report in US, we're getting sales in, in euros. We want to make sure we get at least as many dollars as we anticipated. If it goes up from there, then great. But we want to protect our bottom side. And if you're hedging, Typically, you're in a cap, your upside as well. Um, why is it not as simple as that?
2: Yeah, it would be nice if it was, um, but it, it it goes to that the functional currency and the kind of the entities and the layers. So, if you if you only had a U.S. dollar op- operation or a U.S. operation that was selling things overseas or buying things from overseas, and in, in that very simple context, then Absolutely, everyone would be on the same page. Uh, it'd be very clear cut. Hey, all of these transactions that are U.S. dollars, let's let's lock them in to U.S. dollars and and kind of get rid of this risk. Um, it's really just, you know, that complexity of a multinational organization having different functional currency entities who also then have potentially uh, U.S. dollar transactions themselves. And then they have other foreign transactions as well. And depending on, you know, if you have, I'll say that um, a lot of tech companies, they have the luxury, I think, of, you know, just being newer in general than kind of old school manufacturing legacy companies. And what a lot of them have done is they've set themselves up as U.S. dollar functional companies everywhere around the world. So. If they have an entity in uh, Mexico, for local books, you know, and maybe for local taxes, they have to keep a Mexican peso set of books. But for U.S. Gap, they treat themselves as a U.S. dollar functional entity. And what that does is it allows them to treat Mexican peso revenue as you know their risk, both at an entity level and at a corporate level. So in that case, your view of the risk and the way you're handling the accounting, it's all lining up. Those companies have the luxury then of being able to get hedge accounting really easily. They can directly hedge the Mexican peso revenue. Everything works out smoothly, as you said. But unfortunately... What's happened, you know, with a lot of other companies is they kind of grew up and they set themselves up as okay, we're in Mexico, Me- it's a Mexican peso functional co- company, and you know, all over the world they set themselves up like that, and now they're saying, well, hey, you know what? We view the, all that Mexican peso revenue as a risk, and there's some hedge accounting rules that will say, well, it's Mexican peso risk and a Mexican peso entity. And you can't actually hedge, you can hedge that economically if you wanted to, but you can't qualify for hedge accounting. And so then you have a mismatch between the accounting and what you want to do economically. And you know, so then the company there are some workarounds to that, that are probably a little more advanced. But it gets complicated and it gets confusing. And, um, and some companies uh, will say, well, you know what we're going to do? We're gonna, we're gonna, we truly are a global company that has global operations in all these countries. And, and we're going to view those as kind of separate, distinct operations. So Mexi- in Mexico, we're going to hedge everything to Mexican peso. And we're going to treat that as a Mexican peso business. We're going to treat our Euro entities as a Euro business. And then everything kind of rolls up. We have translation risk, but we'll explain that, you know, in our earnings releases, when our in our 10 Q 10 K, we'll explain that as a translation risk. We'll, we'll do something called constant currency reporting. We'll kind of explain it. And we don't think folks care about that, but, but at least we're addressing kind of our ri- individual business risk. So you do have companies do that, but when you're foreign functional and you're U S dollar company, if you want to have that ultimate viewpoint of U S anything, non U S dollar is a risk. Uh, that's where you kind of bump into just challenges and, and you need workarounds. Um So it can be simple, but unfortunately for a lot of global companies,
0: it's, it's just complicated with that whole landscape. So, Jeff, there are many interesting topics that we'd like to touch upon here, but, and that might ring the bell, but one of our favorite exercises to go, and I, is to chase down acronyms and to break them down. You mentioned quite a few times in this episode, US GAAP. Can you quickly explain what that is and how is it relevant to FX? And when I come to it afterwards, but FX hedging and FX hedging accounting.
2: Sure. Yeah. So, so US GAAP is an accounting, you know, guidance on the fly of, you know, I'm actually not a CPA, but I got, I'm I'm a treasury practitioner who got heavily into hedge accounting. So US GAAP is the accounting guidance that most US companies, uh, headquartered companies are following. It's, um, you know, it's, it's organized by FASB uh, in the US. And it's, it's what you have to follow. And the important thing there is that when we're talking about FX, is they have a, a section of their accounting guidance called ASC 830. And you can look this up on FASB's website. You can actually get uh, free online access to the uh, guidance. And if you look up ASC 830, that's the accounting framework uh, that companies need to follow for booking foreign transactions. So it'll kind of outline the high level. And it, it is a framework. So you do have companies that do things slightly differently as far as what kind of rates they're using to book transactions, things like that. But it's all within this general framework of ASC 830. And that covers how you, uh, we talked about remeasurement, how companies need to remeasure their books and, and certain things like that on the transaction basis. ASC 815 is the accounting guidance that covers hedge accounting, and that's just a whole other animal of, yeah, when you're hedging these risks and you have derivatives, you have to put them on the books at fair value, and then depending on the risk you're hedging, you might want it designated for special hedge accounting treatment. And so this is all outlined in excruciating detail on ASC 830, (laughs) <laughs> um, so U.S. GAAP is covering all of that for, for those companies that are being audited and following U.S. GAAP. And then for uh, a lot of international companies now, they'll be following IFRS. And for that, they have uh, IFRS 9 is their hedge accounting. And at a very high level, the U.S. GAAP hedge accounting and IFRS 9 in terms of you know your typical standard FX hedging are very similar, uh, but there are there are some nuanced uh, differences there as well. So, but yeah, when we talked about understanding your company's framework, um, you know that's that's another high level point that kind of skipped over is yeah yeah you, you want to know what
0: what uh, accounting framework that you're following as a company. So how about we go back to, I love that you touched upon a hedge accounting, that's a whole other animal as you call them, but maybe before that, can you explain us how those companies would hedge against all those risks, like maybe not going into all the details of transaction risk, anticipated transaction risk, booked and so on, but overall, how should a board and the different stakeholders we touched upon earlier should look at those risks and hedge against them?
2: Well, at a very high level, what you're trying to do is, you know, it's at the point in time you think you have a risk, and you would like to walk in to a certain value of that transaction, eliminate the foreign currency element volatility out of that transaction. And the simplest thing that you're doing is is you're calling the bank. Most companies are using very basic forward contracts, uh, where you're locking in. Instead of doing a spot contract where you're just converting, let's say, the currency right away, you're locking into a rate, and it will have something called forward points, and you're locking into a future date delivery of that contract. And so, let's say you have euro revenue next month, and you like the rate today. I think the euro's been doing okay lately. It's like 108, 109. You wanna you're like, okay, that's that's good. It could go up, it could get go down, but I just want to lock it in today. Um, so you call the bank, it's euro revenue. So you, you would say your your long revenue, and you can call the bank and say, Hey, I want to sell X amount of Euros for delivery next month. And so they give you a rate, and you've essentially locked that in then. So whether you take delivery of the contract, so whether you actually collect those Euros and then you sell the Euros to the bank, you wire the bank the Euros, or you can do something at the end if you don't actually want to do that actual delivery. You can actually just kind of close out the contract at the end at the you know, at the new market rates a month from now. So economically, what you've done though is you've put a short euro position, you know, on your books or to offset that long Euro revenue. And you could do that with the Ford contracts. Uh, global companies might do that with an option contract. And, you know, sometimes you see some, some collars. A lot of times though, in the FX world for global companies, they're, they're doing pretty basic things with the instruments and, and hedging. So that's kind of the basic gist of, of all you're doing is, is working with the bank, to put that offsetting position uh, on your books. And with that comes you know, a whole slew of challenges, understanding what's going on, getting the information, getting to that point where you know what you want to tell the bank what to
1: do, and then accounting and, and tracking everything. But that's what they're doing. I'm guessing there's not like a one-size-fits-all solution to, to each transaction, Right. It's interesting you mentioned you can either not exercise that that option with the bank or choose to exercise it and and it's different strategies later. What are like the different parameters I guess, that change from a hedge to hedge? It's like period that you're hedging out from or how long ahead you're hedging, I guess What else like changes between different hedging hedges itself? Well, it's a good question. do you hedge the entire amount always? Or can you also do a partial hedge cause it's cheaper or like, I guess there's differences like this, right?
2: Yeah. I'm trying to think of how to, to go in
1: this direction without getting insanely detailed, go for it. But uh, don't be afraid of details. We'll have technical details here, Jeff. all good.
2: It... so we talked about kind of when your risk starts, so that's the one variable is you know, deciding when you're going to actually start putting the hedges on in place. Uh, but then as you said, so what are your variables for kind of how, how to end the hedging and, and things like that? And 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 the difficult thing with answering that question is just that so many companies are doing so many things differently, and, and you, you can get some different instruments involved as well. But generally speaking, um, if we're talking about hedge accounting, the one thing companies don't want to do is risk losing hedge accounting. So a lot of times they'll structure a hedge program so that you've probably heard of the term layering. So they're doing some form of layering their hedges. So if they're hedging something that's you know eight months from now, they don't want to just jump out and hedge that 100%. Because what if the forecast changes? What if the forecast comes back a little different? So depending on... The company, depending on you know the reliability of whatever particular item that they're hedging and and business flow that they're hedging, you know they're going to decide. Well, you know maybe we'll have a program where we start off hedging twenty percent, and three months we get a kind of a fresh forecast. We're now a little bit closer to to that time frame where it's going to occur. Are we feel more comfortable. We'll add another twenty percent to our hedge, and then three months go by. We're even more confident now. We're going to add another twenty percent to our to our hedge position. So, so companies will do certain strategies based on pretty much their comfort level with being wrong and the comfort level with the forecast. So, some companies will say, you know what, we really can't even have any reliability on a monthly forecast, but we feel pretty good about our quarterly forecast. So, we know that we'll have a certain amount of sales within this quarter. Not sure if it'll be next January, February, or March, but it's going to be flowing in that quarter. So you can actually kind of view yourself as hedging for the quarter. And then you have decisions to make where I could have my hedge mature at the end of the quarter, and then I can kind of unwind it as each month goes by and I kind of know what's come in. I can kind of economically unwind my hedge as I go, or you know maybe you you do something else or have it just mature in the middle of the quarter. So those are all decisions that uh, a company kind of needs to walk through when they're setting up their hedge program and figuring out how they want to actually structure you know, all of that administrative parts of, of the hedging process.
1: And am I right to saying you only hedge, maybe I'm saying something stupid here, you only hedge the booked risk against your booked FX risk? Because we, we talked about the different types of FX risk, right? I, I guess you don't hedge your anticipated, or you, do you hedge the difference between anticipated and book? Like what? Which one of the risks are you hedging?
2: Yeah, tough thing with a tough thing with a uh, a podcast here is I I don't have my PowerPoint slides to show you, but I like to lay that out on a timeline, and okay. and so you can hedge both. Um, okay. Now with a public company, that's why they want hedge accounting because what hedge accounting does is it allows them to hedge the anticipated risk without there being this big accounting mismatch with what they have to book for the hedging contract and what they are not booking for the risk because it's an anticipated risk. It's not on your books. So with hedge accounting, basically what it allows you to do under IFRS 9 and, and US GAAP ASC 815 is what it's allowing companies to do is it's allowing them to put this derivative on their books, but they're basically allowed to I'll call it hiding, but it's it's not hiding, it's legitimate, but it's hiding it from the PL because it allows them to put the hedge result into something called other comprehensive income, OCI, which is in equity. And so only at the end of the hedge, you do everything properly. At the end of the hedge is when you will then book the result of the hedge in the PL. And if you're hedging revenue, then what you want to do is then, okay, my hedge result is going into revenue. So in that Japanese uh, yen example, you would be able to basically tuck away the hedge result until the very end when. You had those losses because the JP on your revenue losses on your anticipated value of your Japanese yen revenue. So, if your Japanese yen revenue you were hoping was 500 million, it's now only worth 400 million. Well, what happens there at the end is you get to say, okay, I had my hedge result of 100 million positive. I can now book that into revenue and I have my revenue of 500 million. So, everything works out how I want it at the end. Uh, so that's hedging the anticipated risk is a lot of companies, especially public companies will want to use hedge accounting to be able to make the accounting line up with that economic risk that they're hedging or anticipated risk that they're hedging. On the book transaction, you actually are okay with, you have a hedge, you have to mark to market that hedge. You have to book it at the fair value at the end of each month. And the whole idea is Okay, I'm okay with that hedge being booked to FX gain or loss on on my PL because that's going to offset. If I did everything correctly, that's going to offset that revaluation of the booked risk that's also impacting the FX gain or loss in the in the opposite direction. So you want to approach those with kind of a different strategy, but you can hedge them both.
0: Jeff, maybe. So I feel we've touched upon quite some uh, throughout this episode, but can you highlight and maybe summarize what are the biggest challenges when it comes to FX risk management and hedging and hedge accounting Um, and making the link maybe with recent events and periods we are in, like how those high volatility periods impacts all this risk management and overall, is it the biggest challenge or are there others? What's your view on that?
2: Yeah, sure. I'll I'll answer the second question first. So, yeah, there there has been a lot of volatility um, over the past year, especially the past couple of years. A lot of people, you know, attribute to yeah the the central banks being a lot more active now. They're they're changing their rates more. There seems to be a lot more uh, fluctuations that ends up driving with with central bank interventions. It it kind of has more. Unexpected changes to both the currency values, as well as it's been making the cost of hedging a little bit more volatile. So, when I mentioned like a simple example with a forward contract of hedging, there's a component of that in the forward points that's actually based on interest rate differentials between both currencies. So, as the central banks are kind of, you know, raising their interest rates up and down and there's just more action there, that's also, um, just changing you know, the way companies are seeing their cost of hedging kind of flow through. So all that volatility has really thrown a lot of companies off. Uh, even companies that have, have had hedge programs, they're seeing like all of a sudden their cost of hedging is way different and they might want to approach things differently. And the way that I think volatility impacts companies the most is really just, um, especially companies that have hedge programs. So Little things that maybe were off in your hedge program. So let's say you're relying on forecasts and the forecasts have been off, but the rates haven't really moved that much. Well, if if rates aren't moving a lot and your hedge program isn't perfect, you're not gonna notice a big difference because you know you're not gonna be getting hit hard by some small mistakes. But when volatility is high, you know have smaller mistakes that actually kind of hit you hard and and kind of come to the surface so it really I think exposes a lot of issues that companies have had underlying to their FX risk and their hedge programs it's really just exposing things that otherwise could have been kind of swept under the rug so you know at a high level I think that's where the volatility's surfacing is is just it's it's exposing issues that have been around for a while that companies have been able to get away with not addressing. And then the biggest challenge, I think, just in general, you know, again, we talked about FX being this kind of circular iterative learning process. There's a lot of concepts. there's a lot of differences in terminology. There's a lot of complexities with the way global companies are set up. And as a practitioner, I've worked with practitioners before who they came from one company who kind of had a certain functional currency setup or they booked transactions a certain way and kind of thought they knew what was going on. They get to a new company who is booking the transactions completely differently. And they have a different functional currency setup, different type of flows, and the hedge program is completely different. The approach to it is different. So there's always a lot to learn. There's always a challenge with just knowing the landscape of what's going on, but then in addition to that, we didn't touch on it a lot, but it's just then getting the information, the administrative process of getting visibility on your exposures. Uh, historically, ERP systems haven't had a lot of great direct reporting that will give you kind of those non-functional currency balances right out of the ERP, um, but You've got to take all this information. You got to aggregate it. You got to analyze it, and then you got to make actions on it. It's a big administrative process, and it's a big learning process. But uh, that's what I find really great about FX is there's just constantly something to learn. When I went from being a corporate treasury practitioner to to the consulting side seven years ago, when I was interviewing, you know, for that consulting company. One of their concerns was, oh, you know, as an assistant treasurer, you're just wearing all these hats. You're focused on the global cash management, the debt, the FX is just one piece of it. You're even involved in insurance and like, how are you going to handle, you know, just focusing on FX? And, you know, I said, well, to be honest, I wasn't sure, <laughs> but I said, you know, I I, I think that I, I really like diving into the technical side of things, FX is actually a really big world. And that turned out to be absolutely true. Like the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. And and there's just tons to learn in FX. So it's a challenge,
1: but it makes it really interesting. No, definitely. definitely getting that impression. <laughs> Jeff, didn't think we'd have so much, but so much we haven't talked about, but, um, but we're, we're closing in on the end of the episode now thank you so much. So I feel like we've got a much better idea of um, different types of FX risk uh, and then the human element of that and the expectation and how you can set up, how different companies are set up differently in terms of where they need to report and, and how that affects their hedging strategies and how that affects what a risk is and so much more we haven't covered yet. But thank you so much for also taking us through all of that. Last question for you, Jeff, something you were starting to wrap up the episodes with. In today's world, AI is all the buzz. Treasury is not immune to that at all. What's your opinions on how AI is going to affect FX risk management, hedging, etc.? Like, where do you see the biggest opportunities for AI in this space? Yeah. So,
2: yeah, I'm sure there's just endless possibilities with where AI is going and how it can ha- help FX. The the first thing that comes to mind is that. Forecasting piece, so exposure forecasting. Whether you're you're talking about, you know, so let's just focus more on the transactional risk on any elements of that. Certain companies need to employ certain types of forecasting potentially to understand the exposure, and uh, that can be a, a challenge for folks. So I would imagine with similar to cash forecasting, uh, using machine learning, using uh, AI to to help. That forecasting is going to be great for for FX because you know at the end of the day you know it's, it's just like a lot of other things it's garbage in garbage out if you're hedging the wrong exposure or an in- inaccurate exposure you're you're not going to be very effective economically with your hedge program and um, so if AI can help with that that'll be huge I'd imagine that AI could eventually kind of swoop in maybe on more the execution side of things. Maybe automate how companies are executing their their FX deals, and um, in a way that can you know get them a good deal you know with the bank, but but automate it for them. So right now there's decent automation with companies using multi bank trade portals, but you know if that could be even streamlined further, um, all those administrative processes um, you know will be great for automation. Super cool! Thanks so much,
1: Joe. So anything else we haven't touched on in FX risk management that you'd like to just leave a quick note on to end for our listeners? No, yeah, I think um,
2: you know, if you're if I guess this is Treasury one oh one, so everyone's learning. I'm realizing that I usually have PowerPoint slides in front of me when I'm when I'm doing like an FX training on uh, on these concepts and as a podcast. I'm a little worried that okay, that was maybe a, a little a little hard to follow without without materials, but um there are materials out there available. Um, you can look at my company's website, you know just seek seek them out, whether it's you know your your local treasury group or whatnot, go through them. I think it's you know it'll help out a lot to maybe see some of these concepts laid out, some timelines laid out. But you know don't especially when you start getting into hedge accounting. Don't get frustrated. it's a lot of going around in circles, chasing concepts down, kind of reevaluating uh you know what you just read. So if it didn't all make sense, just stick with it uh keep keep learning and and it'll all make sense in the end.